Well, uh, I was very excited the other day. Very excited indeed. I went to the bank, I kind of got some money out, and uh, the person in the bank gave me a, a £50 note. I hadn't received one of those, I don't think ever. And there I had my £50 note. The problem is, I'm really struggling to use it. Not because I don't have anything to spend on it. I don't know if you notice that locally at the moment there seems to be lots of signs up in shops, particularly coffee shops, are saying, we don't accept £50 notes. I had a really, really fun argument with a person saying, this is legal tender, and so on. I went on a, quite a rampage on that, but let's not go there. <laughs> the problem is, there are lots of fakes out there. There are lots of counterfeits everywhere. Whether it's in currency, I'm not going to go down this avenue, but even in politics maybe as well. Certainly in church organisations, we see counterfeits everywhere, don't we? Fakes dressed up as the kind of the real thing. I mean, I don't want to be too contentious, but certainly in the Church of England, there, are, there seem to be bishops who are more interested in blending into the culture and preserving church buildings rather than proclaiming the countercultural, life-saving good news of Jesus. But we mustn't be too critical. Because it's very easy, isn't it, for all of us to lose a sense of proportion, to take our eyes off the main thing. Often, I have to say, more reflectively, at churches like ours, they seem so bothered about contending and criticising others that they just appear angry and picky most of the time, concerned with kind of petty details rather than love and compassion for the weary and the burdened. And the question to ask is, you know, of all of us, are we counterfeit? Or are we the real deal when it comes to being a Christian? Have we lost a sense of proportion? Have we taken our eyes off the main thing? Well, that's what we see in our passage today, I think. Jesus, uh, we see, is uh, challenged by the Pharisees. And the question, all of it revolves around, what can you do on the Sabbath day? Certainly according to the law, as it's interpreted by the people in the story. And we see in this exchange, Jesus is exposing the Pharisees. And he's exposing them as essentially counterfeits, they're fakes. They've taken their eyes off the main thing. And Jesus firstly does this by exposing that they don't understand scripture. They're misreading it. But then he goes further, and this is the bigger point, if you like. He's, he's standing right in front of them, and he's showing that the one standing right in front of them was the one who wasn't just able to understand the Scriptures, but he was able to interpret the Scriptures and interpret the law. But why? Because he was king over it. He was the Lord. So what we see is Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Why don't you turn your eyes out? Let's have a look at the story that's run through little bit by little bit. You'll see in verse 1 there, Jesus, with his disciples, he's going through some cornfields. They're having an afternoon stroll. And they're hungry. And so they reach down their hands and they, they pick up some grains of corn and eat them. Problem? Oh, the problem is the Sabbath. And it's like... It's like all of us, you know, maybe, maybe some of you all popped to St. Louis local or Tesco Metro or I'll include all the rest, you know. For, you know, well, you pop home on the way home from church. What we see here, though, in verse 2 is that Pharisees are, are not pleased about this at all. Look what they say to Jesus. Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. 
The Pharisees, you see, they're the teachers of the law. They're experts in God's law. They loved God's law. So much so that what the Pharisees had done, if you didn't know, they they created a whole other layer of laws over and above God's law in order to keep God's law. In fact, just on this area alone, they created 39 extra kind of categories of work that they had made sure that were forbidden on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, was given by God's people, uh, given to God's people to rest from their labours, to rest from their work. Now, though, according to the Pharisees' rules, the disciples, simply by reaching down, taking up some corn, they were breaking their Sabbath rest. Now, let's not get too down on laws and rules. Rules are helpful, aren't they? They provide direction. We have a police officer here. We've got to say these things. No, is it, laws are helpful. They, they, they keep us away from kind of chaos. It's been really interesting this year, hasn't it? The, the best-selling book in Waterstones for men this year, it's called 12 Rules for Life. It's very interesting, that, isn't it? We want to know our boundaries. We want to, rules to help us to how best exist in life. The problem was, the Pharisees, they'd added all of these rules to protect God's law. But the danger in doing that is that you can easily forget the purpose of the original rule, the the original commandments which God had given in his law. And all of that was given for the people of God to preserve their relationship with God and then with him and vice versa. They were to rest from work, that's the Sabbath, to focus their worship on God. That was the purpose of the Sabbath. The problem is, this isn't authentic faith in God if it's just reduced to rule-keeping. And that is the issue here. And that is what Jesus is pointing out as he responds to the Pharisees. Look at verse 3. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. You see what Jesus is doing there? He's he's not directly answering the question of verse 2. He could have quite easily rebuked their petty challenge. However, instead of directly answering, he goes on to make a much more fundamental challenge to the Pharisees. And he turns them back to what they treasured so much. So he turns them back to the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 21. Where the King David, who was going to be king, but it's just David at this time, he, he and his companions were faint with hunger. They'd been going about God's work. And the story goes like this David comes to the high priest, and firstly, he lies to the high priest. He says they've been sent on a secret mission from King Saul. He hadn't. So he lies first and foremost. Uh, and, then, and then he eats. And therefore defiles what's called the shoe bread. That is the consecrated bread of the Ark of the Covenant. Which symbolised God's presence with his people. And importantly, here is what's been picked up. He did that on the Sabbath. Now let's be clear. Jesus isn't saying that these two incidents are the same. David's men were, literally the words in the Old Testament, are faint with hunger. They are you know, starving, they're going to fall down, they're going to collapse if they don't get any food whatsoever. Oh, Jesus, Jesus' disciples just walk through a cornfield in an afternoon stroll, they're just a bit peckish. 
There's a difference there. Uh, David's men have been on, on the business of, the, of God. They've been working in a sense doing kingdom work. Again, disciples are they're just walking through the fields. You know, catching a nice view. What Jesus is doing here is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He, he's showing that their revered king David both lied, he ate the consecrated bread on the Sabbath. And Jesus is kind of shown by this, he's saying, look, there's nothing in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture is this condemned. By contrast, the disciples are just having a little snack. It's a much lesser issue. So should we condemn them? That's the question being asked here by Jesus. And Jesus is provoking the Pharisees to reflect on their reading of the law. Showing them that true faith cannot be reduced to just a, a mere following of rules. Now Jesus continues to unpick, unpick the Pharisees in the following verse. Look at the example now. Look where he's, got. he's gone to the Old Testament, he's gone to David, now he's going to go to the priest. All the things they revere. Verse 5. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests of the Sabbath, uh, um, on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? If you were to go back to that, you can note this down if you want. Numbers 28, verse 9 and 10, the law is given for Sabbath offerings that the priests were to prepare. Simply, you've got to understand that the priests on the Sabbath, they're working double time. They're absolutely putting in all the yards. They are absolutely working so, so hard. And this is Jesus' point. The priests are working exceptionally hard on the Sabbath. They don't rest. But they're considered innocent. They're not condemned. And verse 6, Jesus' punchline, have a look down. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. It's him, Jesus. And what's he saying there? Well, the temple, you see, is it's the most important place to the Pharisees, to the Jews. It's where God has symbolically dwelled amongst his people. God's footstool, the Ark of the Covenant, was central. It symbolised God's presence, his revelation and his rule. And now Jesus is standing right in front of them and he says, something greater, even than that, is here. Now in the past, God of course had revealed that there's something greater was to come through the prophets. A greater glory, a greater temple presence. There was anticipation in the people, even in the Pharisees. But the Pharisees, their expectations were slightly skewed. They expected a newer and a bigger temple. They expected a new kind of army to rule, a king to rule. But Jesus here is claiming that in him, as we're about to see in Hebrews, the old has gone, the new has come. Because the king of that long-anticipated new kingdom had arrived and he was stood right before them. Someone greater than the temple, in whom the presence of God dwelt and was manifest. I remember going to see a, a lord, you know, like from the House of Lords. I went to go see a lord. It was a little while back now. And um, I met him in his office in London. I remember sitting down in a meeting room uh, and uh, he was going to come... I was waiting for him. He was going to come and join me. Now, I was expecting someone to kind of stride in. He was a lord. I was uh, you know, expecting him to be so grand, to try, you know, stride in, expecting him to exude kind of power and authority. 
All the civil servants are laughing their heads off at the back over there because they know much, much better than this. But that, I was personally kind of terrified. I was meeting this kind of a lord. I thought it was going to be amazing and quite scary, to be honest. And then a very gentle, senior gentleman walked in. He had a very warm smile. And he reached out his hand to shake mine. And he was walking around his office. He'd taken his shoes off. He was just in his socks. He'd taken his tie off. He had a couple of buttons undone. And it was extraordinary. He was delightful. And we chatted about our faith and we, we prayed together. He was nothing like I expected. Well, Jesus stood in front of the Pharisees and their expectations, much like mine, meant they were blind to the greatness that stood before them. Here before them was the king of God's kingdom. And as he says in verse 8, he's the son of man, the Lord of the Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath was created by God and for God. The day of rest had anticipated and pointed towards the ultimate rest that we'll enjoy with God. But Jesus is is claiming to be the eternal, all-powerful, ruling Son of Man. That's a picture from Daniel 7. And God himself, the Lord God in human flesh, who created the Sabbath, who rules over the Sabbath, and for whom the Sabbath was for. And you see what Jesus is doing here. He does it to the Pharisees as much as he does it to all the rest of us here. This whole section... This whole section of Matthew's Gospel, uh, verse, chapter 11 and 12, have been about how we understand who Jesus is, his identity, and whether we accept him or reject him. See, the point is, and what Jesus is, in a sense, pushing the Pharisees towards is, you can't come to Jesus and just say, oh, wasn't he a lovely teacher? You can't come to Jesus and say, oh, what a wonderful prophet. He was. He's either the greatest deluded megalomaniac and blasphemer ever. Or he is God in human flesh. They're not my words, they were C.S. Lewis's words in a debate just after the World War II. He's either the greatest deluded megalomaniac and blasphemer ever. Or he is God in human flesh, the promised eternal son of man who has eternal rule for whom the Sabbath was created by and for. See, Jesus here in this claim, it's kind of a throwaway, isn't it, verse 8? He's Lord of the Sabbath. If he is, he owns it, he rules it, and he can redefine it in the light of who he is and what he will do. But Jesus' claim, anyone, any of us can claim anything, can't we? It hinges on evidence, doesn't it? You could claim anything, but without evidence, you're just hot air, aren't you? Hence the next episode in verses 9 through to the end of our passage in verse 14. You see, if Jesus is greater than the temple, it is God in human flesh, presencing himself amongst us, revealing God to us, who is then Lord, King over all, including the Sabbath, and can redefine it in the light of who he is. If he is that... Prove it. Because that's what we're all thinking, isn't it? Prove that you are who you say you are. And here we see it, evidence that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Look down at verse 9 with me. 
We see here the kind of another little episode. Jesus goes into a synagogue. And we know from other gospel accounts, it's probably a week later, the following kind of Sabbath day. There's this man with a shriveled hand. Do note the Pharisees, though. Look at them. I mean, these men are the religious elite. And what do they do with this man? (coughs) Nothing. These so-called great men of God. They don't find ointment to soothe him. They don't care for him at all. They don't sit down and talk to him. Show compassion and mercy. They just sit back. These so-called great men of God, they just sit back and they use him in order to trap Jesus. Do you see what rule-driven religion leads to? No. Jesus has already exposed it back in verse 7, quoting actually there from Hosea. He's done that twice in Matthew's Gospel. Second time for the Pharisees. See, God desires in those with true faith, mercy and sacrifice. But by this time, the Pharisees are cold to that truth in God's word. And their question to Jesus in verse 11, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, they're trying to put Jesus on the ropes, aren't they? And look how Jesus fights back. Remember who he is. He's the son of man. That is the the one from Daniel 7 who has eternal power and rule and dominion over all things. He's Lord. He's king over all things, of creation, all of us and everyone. How is he going to fight back? Poof. Anything. He's going to blow them out of the sky. What does he do? He has every reason to give these Pharisees a good smack around the chops, as my grandma would say. They're, They're cold and they're very annoying. But Jesus takes out the most deadly weapon against religious rule keepers. The thing they treasure the most, he he points them back to scripture. Verse 11, he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? See, he's turning back to the law and what was permitted on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees said that work was permitted, but only when it was going to prevent death and relieve extreme pain. But the funny thing is, if you were to go to Jewish history, you know by this time that you know, certain pressures had come on to the, kind of the, the, the Jewish population. They'd pretty much ignored rules with regard to animals because they were such a precious commodity. You see, if you were to absolutely follow the pharisaical laws about animals, if your animal, if your sheep fell into a pit you'd, on the Sabbath, you'd have to leave it there. Because yeah, you're not going to put yourself in danger. There's, there's, you can't go the first exception and there's no mercy to you. It doesn't matter. So you, you just got to leave it there. You can come back the following day if it's still alive and you know, take it out then. But you just have to leave your sheep there. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. He knew by this time that in a sense they were doing that anyway. They were working in that way. They would have got the sheep out. That, that was kind of common practice at the time. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. And his point is simply made in verse 12. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? How much more valuable is this man with a shriveled hand 
than a sheep that you would regularly go into a pit to go and get out. You would do that work on a Sabbath. How much more valuable is this man with the shriveled hand? Jesus here is Lord of the Sabbath. He's, he's, he, he, he can reinterpret it. Therefore, it's lawful to good on the Sabbath. Saving your sheep, protecting your livelihood, caring for your family was a good thing. And the law, the law never, ever condemned anyone for doing good, whatever the day. And Jesus applies that. Look at that, verse 13. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Here's the evidence. If you want to know Jesus is Lord over all things, including the Sabbath, here's the evidence. He stretched out your hand. He stretched it out and it was completely restored. Just as sound as the other. You see, the Sabbath was given to God's people as an expression of his goodness and his mercy to us. And it points us, doesn't it, toward that perpetual rest that we will find in eternity with him. And Jesus as the Lord of Sabbath. He's demonstrating here his credentials as the Lord through the healing of this man's hand. But he's also redefining our Sabbath rest that we're to enjoy in him. Because the Pharisees, they reduce the Sabbath to a set of legalistic rules. And let's be honest, that's a temptation for all of us, isn't it? We love that kind of, kind of box, tick box religion, don't we? Particularly so we can measure ourselves up against other people. Do you ever do that? Maybe it's just me. But that is counterfeit Christianity. It is fake. And Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, says, as we saw last week, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Find rest in me. You see, our Sabbath rest is found in the Lord of the Sabbath. It's as we reflect and rest on him, expressing the mercy and goodness that he has shown us. That is our rest. See, our Sabbath rest is ultimately found in Christ. But, probably many of you, we haven't kind of pointed out, what about is it, what does it look like for us today? What is our Sabbath, if you like, in that? There is wisdom of having a day set apart to take more time to reflect and rest in Christ. So Sunday, as we gather, should be different. Now, we shouldn't be legalistic about that, but it's important. And it should be a priority to reflect and rest in Christ. But be warned. See the Pharisees, see them as a warning to you. They were zealous and disciplined, but in their zeal and in their legalism, what did they lack? The very thing that Jesus warned them about twice in, from Hosea. They lacked mercy. They lacked sacrifice. They were all about rule keeping. I don't know if you've ever come to church and you've reflected on God's mercy poured out on you and you've kind of walked out and... Jesus is great and wonderful. And then you've bitten their head off the first person you've kind of met. It's terrible, isn't it? No mercy to anyone else. Happy to receive it from the Lord Jesus. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't leave here and think that the Christian faith is just cold rule keeping. You've done your bit. You've ticked your box. The Christian faith is understood as we come to Jesus and rest on him as we trust him, but is lived out in expressions throughout our week of mercy and sacrifice that we have received from Christ. Our Sabbath rest is ultimately going to come in glory. 
But Sunday should be a wonderful expression of that. As we gather, because we will rest in Christ, rejoicing in his mercy and his sacrifice. But there is a wisdom in the rest of the day also being set apart to express to each other and to everyone around us the mercy and the kindness of God. I don't know, when I grew up, it's really funny, Sundays were so uniquely different. Do you remember this when you grew up? Maybe it's not true for you. I remember growing up and it was, it was interesting, you, you couldn't go anywhere because there wasn't any shops open. I, wherever you went, no shops were open. We went to church, our routine was the same every week. We went to church in the morning. We had people for lunch. Hospitality. What a wonderful expression of the rest that we enjoy with Christ as you demonstrate mercy and sacrifice to those around you. I remember after lunch we used to meet up with friends, neighbours. We used to go out for walks. Walks were just like the, the thing that you had to do. Not legalistically. They were a good thing to do. We'd come home for a very British tea. Always fond of fancies. Scones and clotted cream. Essential. But all of that was to rest, to have a time and a day set apart and different within the week. Yeah, the physical, the emotional rest was important and healthy, but it's only an expression of the deeper reality. We were away in, um, just a couple of uh, weekends ago in uh, Suffolk with uh, Nathan and Anna's uh, church. They were all members of the church here and they've moved back home to Suffolk. And there we were with a bunch of farmers and uh, they, pretty much the whole church of farmers uh, or involved in the kind of the agricultural industry. I, I've never been to a prayer meeting uh, in a weekend away at 7.30, knowing that many of the people there have already been up for four hours. I mean, that was just the weirdest thing ever. They'd been back to their farms, done their stuff, and then come back. They were all bright and chirpy. It was incredible. But there they are. They stop their tractors on Sundays and go to church. Twice. It makes no economic sense. And they aren't legalistic about it. They just understand, I think, more clearly that they, aren't, that they can't keep going seven days a week. And they know the joy of both the physical rest but also the spiritual rest of coming to Christ and hearing him speak through his word and being encouraged by the church and the people around them. But also, as they express the mercy and sacrifice of Christ to others during the day. Sabbath rest in Christ ultimately happens in glory. I hope we're clear on that. But rest in Christ today is not feet up, sofa bound, Netflix binging. Sabbath rest is Christ exalting rest and reflection on the mercy and sacrifice of Christ. Yes, in yourself, but with others as well. You see, the Pharisees, they're, they're so blind to see who Jesus was. And we see their anger boiling up as we get to the end of this passage. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. We come to the end and uh, next time we're going to see uh, Jesus is the chosen servant. It's kind of it's these parallel passages here in Verses 1 through to 21. But here we've seen today that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He fulfills it. He redefines it. Because he is Lord over it. And all we can do is we can come to him, weary and burdened as we saw last week. And in him we find the ultimate rest that 
essentially we've all been looking for throughout our lives. But week by week, we express and reflect that ultimate rest by resting in Christ as we gather and hear of his mercy and sacrifice through his word. And as we continue to express it as we leave this building to one another and to those outside. Our faith cannot be reduced to religious rule keeping. That is fake. It is counterfeit. We must rest in Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, Jesus wants us to know that uh, verse 1 to 14 aren't just a record of history. Though they are. This is a historical document you've got before you. And what we will see next week as we go on to this extraordinary longest quote of the um, of a part of the Old Testament uh, within Matthew's Gospel, we'll see there that something extraordinary is going on, something supernatural is going on, and that is where we'll go next week. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you he is the Lord. He is king over all things. He's king over creation. He's king over the church. For he has secured it with his blood. But he's also Lord of the Sabbath. Thank you that we find our rest in him. May we come weary and burdened as we are. And trust in him as he speaks through his word to us. I pray that that is true this week. I pray that in all the days to come, may we find our rest in the Lord Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath.